hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today we've got an incredible interview for you with the newly appointed CEO of Gathered Foods, Christine May. Gathered Foods conceives and launches brands that revolutionize the way people eat. You may have even heard of one of their brands called Good Catch, a plant-based seafood brand offering delicious tuna fish, crab cake, and fish cake alternatives, providing the taste, texture, nutrition, and experience of seafood without harming the environment. Gathered Foods is on a mission to propel change through craveable plant-based alternatives. In this episode, Christine shares with us her inspiring career journey from climbing the corporate ladders at Procter & Gamble, Nike, Coca-Cola, and more, to landing her first CEO role at Gathered Foods. She shares with us her personal leadership legacy statement, which she created while working at Coca-Cola, and talks with us about what it takes to be an influential leader. Tune in to hear all of this and more. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. Speaking of which, I'm going to give a quick shout out to Rosie Burns, who left us a review on Apple Podcasts. She says, Lee Green, you have a great voice and interesting straight to the point questions. This is the first podcast review I've ever written, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Great job. Keep it up. Thanks so much, Rosie. We really appreciate you taking the time to give us a review. I personally read all of our reviews, and they really mean a lot to me and the team over here at Stairway to CEO. It's time to get back to the show. And with that, we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Christine. Thank you so much for being on the Stairway to CEO podcast today. It's such a pleasure to join you, Lee. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. You know, normally we have uh, founders that get the CEO title on the show, but you have really worked your way up the stairway to becoming a CEO. Congratulations on your new role as CEO of Gathered Foods, by the way. Thank you so much, Lee. And you know, we were talking earlier, I love your title, Stairway to CEO. And one of the things that I have personally traveled as many different stairways. You know, I've learned you have, there's so many different ones. There's a spiral staircase. It's the one that split two different directions. And, you know, to, to find your path, you know, I have traveled many stairways. And so I'm, I'm happy to share that journey with you. I know. I love that you say that. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Totally different stairways. There's so many different ways to become a CEO. And I can't wait to hear what your story is. Um, Let's start from the very beginning. Where are you from? What was childhood like? Well, absolutely. So I am a first generation Texan. So my parents actually immigrated from Asia and I did all my formative education in Texas. And when I went to university, I thought I was going to become a doctor, Lee. And, you know, at that time there was no biomedical engineering major. So I was a chemical engineer with a biomedical engineering concentration pre-med. Wow. And uh, I was thinking, you know, if I don't go to medical school, at least I think I'll have a, a fallback on a respectable salary that I could survive on. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> in fact, I decided not to go to medical school. And um, I joined Procter & Gamble as a process engineer and I made coffee. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I worked for the Folger Coffee Company, which was the fully owned subsidiary of P&G. I wore um, steel-toed shoes, a hairnet, and literally my brother's blue jeans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Straight out of um, a fashion magazine. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, it was such an amazing experience, but throughout, you know, having that engineering degree and then now being in a manufacturing facility, I didn't know what a debit or a credit was. So I decided that I wanted to go back to school. So I went back and got my MBA. 
Um, but during the first and the second year of uh, the grad school, you needed to do an internship. Yeah. And I decided that I was going to go to the other side, Lee, because, you know, these marketing folks really kind of made my life very challenging in a manufacturing facility because it was launch, launch, launch. You know, don't tell me what the problem is, but we've got to get the product out there so consumers can enjoy the product. And they didn't want to hear my problems. So mm. I said, you know, I would really like to understand what this other creative side is. So I decided to do my internship uh, in marketing. And I took it a step further. I had an opportunity to be a summer intern in marketing for Procter & Gamble, but I did it in China. Oh, wow. And this was right when um, P&G was entering into China. This was back in 1990. And I, had, I was one of the first five uh, markers on the ground and had the wonderful opportunity to launch Head & Shoulders. Wow. And Head & Shoulders today is the number one shampoo in China. So it's really nice to see this legacy, you know, that you had, you were able to touch on something that was created. Mm -hmm. um, Lee, I found out that it was so much fun to be on the other side. I decided to stay there. And I rejoined Procter & Gamble in China in marketing and proceeded to be Launch Queen. So we launched all different kinds of categories. We launched more shampoos. We launched paper. We launched laundry. Uh, we just launched a lot of different things because it was the early days. And by other side, you mean other side of manufacturing versus marketing? Kind of being exactly, more on the front exactly. of... From yeah. the technical side to kind of more the creative and the business side. Yeah. Um, Exactly. When you were a kid, just taking it back really quick, when you were a kid, did you see any kind of early signs that pointed to leadership or, you know, kind of um, your desire to be in a leadership role? There was always those moments, you know, when you were in high school and you had these opportunities to be in class yeah. and you know, take yeah. leadership positions. And yes, I did. I did get to do that. And All plus, right. I'm the oldest. I have one younger brother. And, you know, I always like to boss people around, of course. <laughs> I'm an older sibling, too. So I totally get that. It's like an innate thing as an older sibling. You're just the one that has to trailblaze through everything yes. yourself and yes. then report back to the younger sibling. Don't go this way. Go this way. Right. Don't wear your socks over your ankles in high school. You could get made fun of, <laughs> you know, like you give them all the heads up and you, yeah. <laughs> but you know, the other part of it too, is that if you really want something, I was always brought up um, that you should find a way then to go achieve it. Mm. And the only way that you can go do that is to make that difference yourself um, and find where did a way. You, where did you learn that from your parents? Absolutely, from my parents. My, my father is a retired university professor, and my mom is, um, she started her career as a surgical nurse um, wow. and then became a homemaker when I was born. But always, 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 um, they encouraged me, you can do what you want, find a way. That's awesome. And was there, did, what were some of the challenges that you faced as a kid growing up that you had to overcome? I was really very lucky, Lee. You know, That's good. I, I, you know, I, I guess what I had were more like luxury problems. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, but I did grow up in a small town and, and probably one of the, the more um, interesting ones that I could share is just we were the first Asian family to live uh, in the town that I was, uh, was in. And mm -hmm. I did not um, experience any kind of negative discrimination, fortunately, but always very cognizant of the fact that growing up, especially at that point in time, that if you, that if you wanted to make a difference, you had to be different. You mm. know, you needed to make sure that you have a unique skill set and you need to work very, very hard for, for what you achieve. So you will arrive with merit mm -hmm. and you advance with merit, not just because of other reasons. Yeah, that's great. So you're, you know, fast forward to where we were before you were an intern um, with at marketing and marketing and you were working with all these big brands now. So tell me about your, you know, experience at P&G and, and what happened next? Yeah, you know, P&G, even with manufacturing, uh, was a tremendous training ground and then marketing, very definitely one of the best classical marketing trainings that you can possibly get. Um, you know, being able to be in the launch kind of mode was the first taste of entrepreneurial spirit that I had, because at that time, uh, we had 
one fax machine for the entire company. We had one computer for the whole department. Wow. It was really the very beginnings. And so you got to learn a lot of these entrepreneurial things that you had to rise above and beyond just your silo. Mm -hmm. make things work and really work as a team, but you still had, you were kind of safely embedded in this cocoon of a much larger blue chip company. So that was, that was really kind of the first kind of exposure to um, really learning how to exist when not all the answers are there. Um, And from there I had an opportunity to go to Nike. I was recruited away to go to Nike and what a wonderful opportunity to have had left brain marketing or, you know, a little bit more structured. By the time I left, it was around standard operating procedures to go to Nike, which was much, much more uh, emotionally based, you know, because when you're talking about authentic sports, talking about connecting with uh, having confidence, right. Um, Mm -hmm. But always having the excellence of product quality behind you. Um, So by the time I finished with Nike, Lee, I feel like I had the whole brain, the left brain and the right brain for marketing. And um, that was a real gift. That's amazing. And so at Nike, what were some of the things that you learned that helped propel you to the next role? So at Nike, I was the regional marketing director for Greater China, Southeast Asia, New Zealand, and South Africa. So it was a real concoction of a lot of different uh, cultures, a lot of different um, uh, kind of consumer habits that we had to go study. So it was very, very clear very early on that you can't just do one plan or one assumption for one country and just pick it up and flop it into the next country. Right. You really needed to uh, be consumer relevant and understand locally what cultures uh, and uh, um, just local habits are. And it sounds like you were probably managing a team um, at Nike was yes. that your first uh, management role or where, when was your first management role and what did you learn about managing people? You know, Procter & Gamble is actually very good at that, whether you are an individual contributor or you have direct manage, manage, managed uh, direct reports. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a real emphasis on being able to provide clear direction, right, and to be able to collaborate. And I think that both of those are incredibly important for anyone to be successful. Um, I actually think, Lee, through the course of my career, if I look back, where are the most seminal moments on learning leadership qualities is when you're an individual contributor. Because it's much harder to be an influential leader when you have to influence to achieve results versus somebody who is obligated to follow your directive. And so I think that uh, even if you're an individual contributor and you have aspirations to be a leader, um, that's a really important skill set to have is to be able to influence. So what is that skill set? What is the skill set that separates an influential leader from just a regular leader? You know, when in, in the roles that I've had in the past, um, sometimes if you work as an individual contributor, you have there's a boss, right, that has... Um, far-reaching influence, um, but they also have uh, direct management that report into them. Mm-hmm. I was always very careful not to use that person's name. It's like, so-and-so said that you needed to get this to me, and so please do it, right? It was, for me, it was always explaining the why. Mm-hmm. Um, we need this because of X, Y, Z. If you have any questions, please, you know, I'm happy to go over those with you. So it was really kind of focused on the deliverable at hand mm-hmm. and that they would provide what was requested or information if you're requesting um, because they could see the value and why that information needed to be passed. So it's, it's really about the why. Why are you asking me as opposed to who is asking you to go do this? Right. Um, that to me is probably one of the more powerful insights to be successful. Hey, real quick, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Future Commerce Insiders. Insiders is a weekly newsletter that brings you the information you need at the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and commerce. If you're a tech founder or an operator at an e-commerce brand, Insiders is purpose-built just for you. Commerce connects all of us, and entrepreneurship gives anyone the opportunity for economic advancement. So, commerce entrepreneurship has the ability to change the world. Want to join us? Do it right now at futurecommerce.fm. That's futurecommerce.fm. Communication is so key. 
it's really, it, it's sometimes really challenging for people to learn how to communicate properly. And, and just like you said, making that very, you know, gentle kind of slight switch in communication just speaks volumes, right? And, and creates that influential leader. What are some Great. other communication skills that you learned along the way that has really helped you to get to where you are? To be clear on what the expectations are, I mean, what I found that, you know, for the most part, everyone comes with good intent. Everyone mm -hmm. wants to pull together to achieve the result and to enjoy success. Um, but as a leader, if you want that success, you have to make sure that everyone is working to the same North Star. You know, I've, I've explained to people, we can, we can all start at point A and all need to end up in point B. But we need to be really sure B is not about like a 50-mile radius. It's actually a place. It's a point in time. So it's a place and it's an agreed upon time where you will meet. Now, some people will take the train. Some people will take the plane. Some people will walk. You know, it doesn't matter. But you ha all have to agree that you're going to meet at the same place at a specific time. And as long as that journey is outlined and what the end point is, people will get there. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I don't want to miss the, the reunion. You know, right. Um, and to help people along their journeys mm -hmm. uh, is really important because somebody might get stuck or you might have car trouble or you missed your plane. But as long as you're working as a team together, you help each other. Right. Yeah. And find alternate routes so you can still get to point B at the same time. Yeah. And so you were at Nike. How did you transition into your next role? So from Nike, we had the Asian economic crisis that happened. And uh, so I've suffered through a few of these uh, crisis situations. Um, but that prompted a move back to the U.S. And uh, I joined the Dow Chemical Company in Michigan and joined their uh, think tank, basically. It was called the Growth Center. And this was then now an exposure to uh, my first foray into true strategy. And the assignment, for instance, was we have eight global business units. What will the ninth one be? So this was a wonderful opportunity to be able to kind of dream, you know, on behalf of a large company, but to be able to dream and dream big, to see how you can make lasting impact. Um, so that was, um, it was, it was really a great learning experience because it could show that you don't need to be uh, distracted by the constraints that you see in the near term. Because then a responsibility is to, to dream and to break new grounds, um, to change things. You have to be willing to think beyond. That's awesome. And so I know you've spent many years working at Coca-Cola. Is that what happened next? How did, how did that happen? Exactly. So I actually ended up working um, for Dow, and then I left Dow and joined a dot-com in uh, California. The bubble burst, then I moved back to Dow, um, and then I moved with Dow uh, to Houston. And uh, at that point, when I was asked to return to Michigan, um, I said, you know, I've already lived in Michigan twice. Um, I, I, you know, I'd like to stay in Texas. Um, so I ended up joining the Coca-Cola company. And again, there's a little bit of a startup story here. I guess my, my first role with Coca-Cola company was with a fully owned subsidiary called um, the Beverage Institute for Health and Wellness. And um, the charge at that time was, you know, Coca-Cola was under quite a bit of um, scrutiny. And there were a lot of um, accusations, you know, you, you make me fat and you rot my teeth. But in fact, Coca-Cola is uh, fully committed to having a wide variety of um, beverages. And the charge for our group was to look for functional ingredients that could provide a health and wellness benefit at some point in the future, right, um, that could be dropped into to a beverage. So from there, I actually had many, many different uh, um, roles from different perspectives. And so this is what we were talking about earlier, lots of different staircases, right? Um, I did strategy for the Minute Maid business unit. Um, I also uh, went into uh, shopper marketing. I led the shopper marketing team for uh, the Walmart account in Bentonville. Um, I was in field marketing um, for our Glasso business unit, which is smart water and vitamin water. 
Um, I went back into operations. I had uh, two plant facilities, which um, I oversaw, one a can plant and one a bottling plant. I also went into sales. I had all the vending machines in the central part of the United States. So uh, lots of different experiences that Coca-Cola afforded me to have. Wow, that's a lot of different roles and a windy staircase, I'd say. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what, I mean, in order to be an executive at that level, what are some of those skills that you had to learn or that you learned along the way at Coca-Cola? That's a great question, Lee. You know, Coca-Cola is also another great company for, that provides um, really, really good training. And I had the opportunity to be part of what they called the inaugural um, System Leadership Academy. And basically what they do at Coca-Cola is comprised of a component of the company. And also we had um, our bottling partners. So if you say company plus bottler equals system. So the System Leadership Academy brought um, talent from around the world from both parts of um, the system to spend time together. And we were lifted out of our jobs for 41 days. And we spent a week together uh, in Atlanta, then we went to Chicago, uh, then another week in uh, Mexico and two weeks in India. So the idea was to look at um, developed, developing and emerging countries and having those experiences along the way. The outcome really from, from that leadership experience, that training experience was to actually write your leadership legacy statement. And uh, I will tell you, Lee, that even when I left Coca-Cola, my teams knew that that was so important to me that, yes, I did get that wonderful crystal Coca-Cola bottle as a going away gift. Wow. But I also got my leadership legacy statement calligraphied and framed. And every job that I've had since then, I have carried that frame with me. And it's on my wall every single place that I've been. And wow. uh, when I left yeah, the next job, there was also another, uh, there was an apron that had it in, in, um, embroidered on it. But what it is, Lee, is listen, learn, and connect with your heart. Only then can you lead with authentic passion. Wow. And that's something that's really um, served me well and represents kind of how uh, I like I like to connect with, with my teams and, uh, you know, the businesses that we, that I've been able to, um, lead. And you mentioned kind of leading with your heart quite a bit, mm -hmm. right? Um, Absolutely. I think in business, a lot of people think that, oh, how could you do that? This is business that's separated from being a human, right? But it's not. So can you dive into what that really means for you? Yeah, you know, um, the very first thing, because I really purposely chose these three words, listen, learn, and connect. Because the first thing as a leader, you really need to listen. And that's about listening to people, right? Because the business is just not going to happen by itself. The business is going to be driven and delivered through and by people. And I think that as leaders, sometimes we have so much pressure to deliver solutions fast. You miss some of the nuggets. Um, and so you really need to stop and listen to your teams because they're the ones that are actually closest to either the issue or the opportunity. And to have the patience, it's hard. Active listening is really, really hard. And so that's why actually it's my first word. It's my self-reminder, listen. And then you have, when you're listening, then you have to be willing to learn. Um, I am a sponge because that is also uh, a reminder that, you don't know everything. You need to be able to learn. And even me, myself, when I look at the people that I surround myself with, it's I want to be inspired by them. And I also want to learn from them because that way you can become a better leader and a better person. And then connecting, you know, connecting with your heart. That means, you know, any, anyone knows if you're getting lip service, right, Lee? You know, if somebody's talking at you and you get lip service, you know exactly that that is happening. But when you see that somebody is genuinely and authentically listening to you, learning from you, wanting to connect with who you are and what you're concerned about, um, I think that there is uh, more of a willingness to work together towards success. But it has to be genuine. It really does. And so, you know, if you can listen, you can learn and you connect, um, that's when you can lead with authentic passion. And in terms of building that relationship, what advice do you have 
I think that a lot of founders sometimes try to keep maybe team members, you know, boundaries. Obviously, there's boundaries. So what advice do you have for, you know, building that relationship and connection with your team? Well, I think that, of course, everyone has different expectations on how um, they're most comfortable in managing. So that's really kind of the first first fundamental thing. You know, you need to be very self-aware with, you know, how you want to how you want to act and interact with your your teams um, and your you know leadership style. So my leadership style, I would not say is going to work for everyone, right? You just have to be accepting of who you are. Um, and so for me, it's about transparency. You know, um, I'm pretty transparent, you know, with the people that are around me, and I also will admit. Uh, when I don't know something, right? Um, I really try to surround myself with people who are better than me. And I know that you hear that, but it's really true. Because if you can rely on and trust people to deliver on kind of their functional expertise, and you have that uh, ability to kind of um, put a lasso around the whole thing and bring it together, right, into fruition, that's where it becomes pretty special. So transparency and honesty um, is kind of fundamental to how I like to work with folks. And as leaders, you know, we can't know everything about what every team member does. So how do you manage and lead team members without truly knowing their jobs, right? Like maybe your expertise isn't in that field. How do you manage um, and track their progress and, and kind of manage team members like that? Well, it comes back to listening, right? And it also, um, you know, when you're, you, I don't, I am not um, a financial wizard, but I do know how to ask questions because in the end, what you need to do as a leader is to be able to make some decisions, right? So uh, you need to make decisions based on data, um, and also through uh, recommendations from your teams. And so it's really kind of an engaged conversation and dialogue that you're learning, but ultimately the decision will be the decision, right? And so it just needs to be backed by um, the data that needs to be supportive of the directions and the choices that you may want to explore. So at Coca-Cola, you had a wonderful career there. You learned a lot. Uh, you created this leadership legacy statement, which is amazing. Um, and then, so what happened after Coca-Cola? I know you've had, you know, a bunch of other companies you've worked for. Tell us about those. Well, Lee, I had always, always wanted to go back to Asia. And I was not looking. And sometimes the best things happen when you're not looking. Um, but I was not looking, and I had an opportunity, though, to lead the global business for kitchen appliances for Philips. And Philips is actually a Dutch company, global headquarters in Amsterdam. So the first question I asked is, well, where's the role again? Right. I said, well, it's in Shanghai. And so, well, why would it be in Shanghai? I said, well, 85% of the manufacturing base is in Asia. And at that time, um, the company was uh, integrating two acquisitions, one in China and one in India. And I thought that it was really um, a lot of strategic foresight from the company to say, we're just going to be in the middle of the action. That's where most of the um, work is. That's where the manufacturing is. Um, we're going to have a strategic headquarters there. And so I said, I'm in. So I moved to, to Shanghai, and that was in 2014. And I ate my way around the world, Lee. It was oh fabulous because, you know, we had um, a charge to create kitchen appliances that could meet the power of homemade food, right? I mean, kitchen appliances deliver that, that joy. They they're the vehicle, right, to deliver that joy um, for making great homemade food. So you had to understand. And actually, I've been in many kitchens around the world and all the different, all the different regions. Fascinating. That is fascinating. I mean, I, tell me about the kitchen appliance space. I mean, in your experience there, it sounds like you got to travel a lot. You've seen a lot of uh, appliances. Um, what are some insights you can share maybe about the industry? You know, for kitchen appliances, one of the interesting things is that, you know, whether you are a homemaker or you're working or the beauty and the, the power of homemade food brings families together and uh, homemade food is sprinkled with love and kitchen appliances can help ease some of the 
cutting or chopping or things that are super time consuming that you don't have. Um, and it's really an enabler to be able to do that. So it was, it was really nice to be able to talk to consumers and um, see how much joy that was extracted just because these appliances uh, allowed them either to experiment, to explore new um, culinary experiences, but also ultimately to, to see the smile on a family member's face when they could taste taste what you made. <laughs> exactly. That's really cool. So what happened after Phillips? So um, after Phillips, I had an opportunity to join Beiersdorf, which is a German skincare company. And that was to, to oversee the Asia Pacific business. So still based in Shanghai, um, I jumped into um, a completely different industry. And uh, Lee, I, I know that we're looking at each other. Um, I, hopefully I look 10 years younger, right? Because I learned so much about skincare, um, you know, when, when I was at Beiersdorf. Now Beiersdorf has brands that you might recognize in the U.S., uh, Nivea, or Eucerin, or Aquaphor. Oh, yes. My husband is German, so he ah. loves his Nivea. Okay. Yes. Well, there you see. Yeah. There you go. It has a definitely an emotional connection, a lot of nostalgic qualities. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was an amazing time, because I think that skincare is uh, so fundamental, right, um, to what we do every day. And But, of course, I was able to learn so much more, um, and in terms of... Um, the skin regimen, there are uh, definitely um, standards of excellence out there, uh, which I have learned because I was told that my skincare regimen was unacceptable when I first joined. <laughs> oh my gosh. We'll have to talk about that after the show because uh, I'll need some tips. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm, it's interesting that you say that, um, uh, that your husband, you know, knows Nivea. I think one of the other things is, uh, we had talked this earlier, is that you can't just take uh, what, what works in one country and just blindly put it into another country. One example is that Nivea, which is in the blue tin, you know, a, a German who has probably experience with his grandmother using it on him, right? Uh, when you close it, it they, they, the, the feedback is it can be a little messy, you know, some of that little cream can kind of um, come out. And they said, but you know, if you're not so familiar with it in another country, um, you're not as forgiving, right? And so you might not go back. So you have to understand that. And then you have to, there's a period of education and then there's just, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, invitation to experience and then um, get that awareness purchase and repurchase, you know, going um, because they want to come back, not just because of the emotional connection, because some people don't have that history. Yeah. So you have so many different industries that you've worked in. It's really incredible. I mean, from, you know, beverage at Coca-Cola to skincare to appliances. I mean, this is like a kind of crazy path, honestly. Lots I of mean, staircases, Lee. <laughs> lots of staircases, very windy. I mean, I think a lot of people would be afraid to apply to jobs that are way outside of the industry that they've been in, right? Because it's a lot easier to stay on the path you're on. What made you want to choose to gain so much, you know, such a wide variety of experience in different industries? Well, you know, they're all still central around the consumer experience. And so everything that I've done um, has basically everything that I've done is connected to the consumer. The companies that I've chosen have always been anchored in high quality. And these are really, um, I guess, central to the choices that I've made. Um, and I would also say that uh, most of these are going to be in the health and wellness space. So um, my journey, there, is, there are some commonalities, even though lots of different staircases, there are some commonalities. You know, I love consumer goods. I have a passion for health and wellness. I actually have, uh, I'm drawn to food and beverage. And uh, so you can kind of see through, through those choices how that has manifested itself. So how did you land at Gathered Foods and why plant-based foods? Yeah, well, 
you know, I, we've kind of gone through this um, this history, this walk down memory lane, um, and it's really been a tremendously rewarding career, Lee, um, across, gosh, a number of amazing multinational companies, um, but still wanted to stay in that wheelhouse, right, of um, consumer, of health and wellness, and, and really kind of a preference for food and beverage. I really wanted to partner with a founder um, to help scale a brand onto its next curve of growth. So I know that those are like really tight parameters to follow, but that was honestly my goal when I made a decision to migrate from the corporate environment to an entrepreneurial ecosystem. Do you think and, that stems from your experience as an investor and mentor at SKU? SKU, I think it's called, right? SKU yes. is, a, um, I think it's an accelerator in Austin. Can you it tell is. us a little bit about that experience? And do you think that that made you kind of really want to work very closely with a founder? Absolutely. You know, when I first left um, the, the corporate environment, one of the things I said that I would do was I wanted to take some time. It was like a purposeful journey, right? Decide how I wanted to live my 2.0. And part of that was really looking at and exploring what that entrepreneurial ecosystem could be, right? Um, I'm also very self-aware that I am not a founder myself, that's not my um, strength area. So really what I can offer is kind of a skill set to help someone who has that, that ability to start up something, but I can be the one that can help scale it at the, you know, that, that next phase. And yes. um, one of the, I guess, the self-tests that I, that I made was that, you know what, I would like to understand and um, kind of get into so inside some of these founders' heads to see what are the challenges that, you know, that they have? What are the aspirations? What motivates them? What inspires them? And fortunately, here in Austin, we have a great startup community. And SKU is a, a consumer products accelerator here. And so I joined um, the latest cohort as an investor and also as a mentor. And we had uh, seven wonderful companies, which we, we mentored through. And through that experience, um, through kind of me, it, it was really me learning from them and them learning from me. So I was both the mentor and the mentee. And uh, that really cemented to me that, yes, I absolutely would be interested in uh, working with a founder to scale. But there has to be chemistry, right, between the founder, because it's their baby, right? And they're now giving up the reins or partnering with someone else to help help grow that baby. Right. It's really interesting to hear you say that, that you really wanted to partner up with a founder because you knew that that's not what you wanted to do. You knew that being a founder wasn't maybe the right role for you. Why right. is that? And what is it that you've learned about yourself to be able to say that? Because I think a lot of people aspire to be a founder. It's just like this glorified thing. You know, and it's it really is a certain type of personality. Can you kind of speak to, I guess, what you've seen? Yes, you know, um, a great example. And you asked me, you know, how did I land at Gathered Foods? I first met Chris Kerr, who was a co-founder, and uh, um, he's now currently the executive chair of of Gathered Foods. He is perhaps one of the most charismatic and committed visionaries that I've I've ever met. And, you know, he and the other co-founders, um, Ch Chad Sarno and Derek Sarno, they're brothers, uh, chefs. So they're the culinary side. Um, they had a dream. You know, they have been um, in the plant-based community personally as vegans for probably more than 15 years. And they have a commitment not only to the culinary end, right, in search of great tasting foods, but also wanting to make a difference so that um, all beings and the planet can thrive, right? And they wanted to be part of that change. And so they actually came together and said, you know what? We really are very interested in making um, a difference for all the fish in the, in the ocean. And they said, and we can find uh, the technology, we can create the technologies and the taste profile and the comparable protein delivery. Um, and we're going to go make that happen. Right. And so, you know, as a founder, uh, you not only have to have the product, you have to have the viable proposition and you have to raise money, mm -hmm. right. To be able to actually make it real. Yeah. And um, meeting Chris and the team, 
uh, learning about the potential of good catch and really kind of what that dream was, um, that was pretty special. I mean, it's completely appealing, totally compelling. And that's not something necessarily that I would be able to do. But once that idea has formed, and once there is, um, I guess, an initial traction, right? My, what, my experience then comes to bear, right? And being able to provide um, uh, some of the operating processes, um, some of the ways that you asked me earlier about asking questions, you know, how can you scale the idea? Um, how do you connect and make it consumer meaningful and relevant, but not only here, but around the world? So when we're talking about scaling, we're talking about real scale, yeah. not just, you know, from one town to the next town. Right. But, you know, how do you make this idea viable and have it travel around the world? Yeah. I love what, what you guys are doing over there. I, um, I, basically became vegetarian uh, three years ago. Uh, and one of the hardest things to give up is seafood because I'm from Delaware and mm. grew up near the Chesapeake Bay. So one of my favorite foods of all time is crabs with Old Bay seasoning. Um, so it's very difficult. We it, have a product like, for you, Lee. <laughs> I can't wait. What is it? I'm buying it tomorrow. Uh, it is available on the East Coast now because we just launched. Right. Um, nice. We have a wonderful uh, portfolio of um, some plant-based frozen um, appetizers and entrees. And uh, one of them is a plant-based crab cake. Wow. We also have a plant-based fish burger and plant-based Thai fish cakes. And these are all frozen. You can find them um, probably at a place near you. We can, we can compare banners <laughs> after the call. And um, I know that you would absolutely enjoy it because definitely the flavor is there, the texture is there. I mean, as a, someone who enjoys seafood, you know that that flaky texture is so important, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, this absolutely delivers in spades. Wow. Well, I really miss seafood, so I'm very excited to check it out. Um, you know, in this kind of new CEO seat, carrying uh, as a CEO, um, it, you really, CEOs carry an enormous amount of responsibility. How do you uh, reduce stress? You know, how do you stay positive every day with all this kind of weight on your shoulders? You know, I'm an eternal optimist. And so I think that just that part of me um, uh, helps carry it through. But the other thing is, you know, it was really important to me when I took this role, um, as really kind of, I was on this journey, right, to find my 2.0, there were two things that were super important. One was that I would have fun, right? You really want to wake up every day, Lee, and just be excited to embrace the work that's ahead of you. It's not always going to be easy, but you really need to have a passion and a commitment and authenticity to what you choose to do. And so it's a choice, right? So therefore, I want to have fun. But equally, I also wanted to make sure that whatever I did, um, I wanted to pay it forward. And uh, on many different levels, uh, I think that, you know, there's social impact, right? What you can really do through these plant-based uh, portfolio, this, these seafood alternatives um, that can make a difference for the ocean and for the fish. But also, you know, I've kind of cycled through the course of my career. What One of the things that we didn't touch on is that there are many points in the career where you have um, uh, very positive experiences with your managers who are forward thinking, right? And who have made or helped you with decisions um, that are pretty pivotal. And uh, each time that happened, because I've been very fortunate, it's happened more than once, um, but each time that happened, um, you file it away. And you, I made a promise to myself that I would pay it forward. And so that's one of the things that I'm also very intent on, on this whole paying, forward, paying it forward. So there's a social impact part. There's this uh, paying it forward for people. And also I have three children. And uh, I have a responsibility um, to make a positive impact on the world to make sure it's better for them. And uh, so joining Gathered Foods really enables me to do all of these things. And so I'm, I'm beyond thrilled to be able to be part of the Gather Foods family. 
That's awesome. And so as you've kind of climbed up the stairway, I mean, how, what are the things and the skill sets that you took with you to get you to where you are that you think maybe other people might be struggling with along the way? Kind of looking back, what do you think are some of those things or skills? I would have to say is don't settle, you know? Um, and look, I certainly understand the realities, especially today, right? There are a lot of people that are facing challenges, um, difficulties, and you have to make decisions, practical decisions. And I can respect that. If you have the opportunity, though, to make a choice, then my strongest piece of advice is don't settle. Don't compromise on what you believe that you want. So again, you have to be self-aware about where you want to do, what you want to do, and why you want to do it. But if you can answer those questions for yourself, then it's really important Then you can try to find your spot, right? Um, I used to have folks who wanted to um, take expatriate positions in China when I was living there. And they would come and do their, their visits, right, to say, okay, do I really want to move here? And I would ask them, you know, I've got, you know, three questions for you. Why do you want to take this job? Is it because you're going to have fun? You're going to advance your career or you're going to make more money. So it's these three, right? So I said, if you come for one of the three, you'll be okay for about six months. But then after the six months, you're going you're gonna to start to question your decision. If you can get to two of these three, you'll be fine. But if you can get three of the three, then it is an absolute dynamite experience for you to go after. Don't try to compromise. Try to get all three of them. But again, you know, it just depends on what your personal circumstance at that point in time. But that would kind of be the ideal. And that's why I say try not to settle, try not to compromise if you can manage. That's great. That's really insightful. Um, I'd love to kind of go into a little bit more of like tactical advice you might have, because I know that being a CEO takes a lot of time management and organizational skills. What are some tips and tricks that you have, whether it's, you know, sharing with us how you run a successful meeting, how do you stay organized? How do you manage your time? What are some of your tricks? Well, you know, one of the first things I think that my team will tell you about me is, um, I think that discussion is really important. Remember this listening part, and I, I have to challenge myself to make sure that I always enable that. But there's a point in time where there needs to be a decision that needs to be made, and we're going to make the decision. So what are the things that are critical to making that decision, and let's get after it? Let's make sure that you're really, really clear on the expectation and who's going to do it by when. And if you're going to miss it, please let me know ahead of time. Because, you know, it, everyone else is, is depending on it, right? Because it's a team effort. So um, I would say that uh, from a tac tactical advice standpoint, again, everyone's leadership style is different. But for me, it's really important that we're clear on our expectations of each other, right? Because I always ask, what do you need from me? What help do you need from me? And I will also say, by when do you need it? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I also will always try to answer all of my emails within 24 hours. And if I don't, for some reason, I tell them, if I haven't answered you within a day, you have every right to chase me at any level, any level of a, any level. If you need an answer, come and chase. It's okay. That's great. So you really just let your team say, you know, you can hold me accountable too. Yes. I think that's really strong. It works both ways. It has to work both ways. I agree with you completely. I agree with you. I think there's a lot of managers and leaders, though, that think that it doesn't go the other way, that think that, oh, I'm running the show. You come to me. You don't tell me what to do. I'm not going to respond to you. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, there's a lot of bad managers out there. I'm sure you've, you know, had your own experience. <laughs> we all have. Um, so I'm just, where did you pick that up? How did you learn that that's the way to do it? You know, it's, it's, it's experience that you gather along the way, but also, you know, as I've changed jobs and as I've changed companies, you know, people also ask me, so what are your expectations? And typically, especially when you're interviewing with a person that you're going to work for, 
right? I said, you know, there's, and I've said this for more than 20, 25 years, so I'm not making it up just to answer your question, Lee. I've said, two th- I said, I need two things. I need to be inspired by you and I need to be able to learn from you. And so those are the two promises. And those are the two things that in, I think is a two-way street, right? So I need to be, I need to be inspired by my and I also want to learn from my manager. So in turn, I feel like I have that obligation then to do that with my teams. But part of the inspiration and part of the learning is about communication, about dialogue and about shared accountability. Because otherwise, it's not a healthy relationship. Yeah. And speaking of kind of accountability, I guess, you know, we're all, we're all human. We all make mistakes. Is there any time where you made a mistake early on in your career or had a major challenge? How did you overcome it? You admit it. That's the first step. Yeah. That is absolutely the first step. You know, um, we all make mistakes, but you have to have the courage to admit it, learn from it, and then take the corrective action so you don't repeat it. Is there a story <laughs> that you could share with us about an example of that from your career journey? Oh, how many, how many are there? <laughs> um, let's see. Um, now you're going to make me, you're going to make me think about this. You know, I think that uh, early on when you have, um, say, product launches, you're going to make, uh, you're going to make product launches and you make certain hypotheses, right, about what's going to work where it's going to work with and what kind of, what kind of spend that you need to make. But if, you know, the, if the immediate um, response in the marketplace is, let's call it short of expectation, um, you need to take corrective action. Um, But you also now need to go to your partner functions. So I was in marketing, right? So your partner functions and say, okay, you know what? It didn't work. Um, but we can't dial the clock backwards. Um, and we're now under time pressure. I need your help, you know, and because we need, we need to make a change. And so, uh, you have to admit when it doesn't work and then find a solution together. Yeah. And it sounds like you have to be vulnerable and willing to ask for help. Yes. You know, a lot of us think that we are invincible, um, yeah. but, uh, you, you can't be, I mean, I think that we, like you said, you know, we're all, we're all human. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that when you're in a, when you are in a position of leadership, you do need to inspire confidence. Yes. Right. You need to provide clear direction. Mm-hmm. You need to provide, um, the choices that have been made and ensure that at all levels, those are understood. Um, but at the same time, you I think it's healthy to be human Yep, because you win together, but you lose separately. Interesting. You win together, but you lose separately. What do you mean by that? You know, if you um, are in your silo and uh, it's not working and uh, you don't ask for help, you're losing, mm. but then you quickly spiral yep. because you've got no one to help lift you out. But if you can reach out your hand and you've built a team of trust and respect, there will be a lot of hands to reach out to help lift you up and then together go find the win. I feel like with this remote working, there's a lot of teams and probably, you know, teammates, individuals that are siloed and managers have to work even harder to keep everybody together and inspired and motivated are there any, is there anything that you've done to t- kind of lift up spirits or what advice would you have for managers to better connect with their teams? You know, whether you are remote or not remote, my answer will be the same. Um, it is important for you to, if you are the leader, to get your teams together regularly. And my personal opinion is that you have a responsibility to each of your direct reports to spend quality time with them. So for instance, for me, my executive leadership team, we meet minimally once a week as an entire team. And then I also have standing one-on-ones with each of the folks on the executive leadership team. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't meet at other times. We do. But that means that there's a standing time that is our time together as a team. 
but also my one-on-ones. I think that's hugely important because, you know, we get so busy, right? And get distracted. And then if you don't, for me, again, I'm very structured in this way. Um, If you don't have that, you know, you can, you can just kind of pile up. And Mm -hmm. usually what it is, I would say, you know, it's your list. You, you, let's just go down your list. And there could be just, they could be not even connected to each other, but just all these like little questions that may not be enough for a meeting or a call or a text. We just kind of go through the list and we take care of it. Um, but uh, that's, to me, um, the balance that you have to achieve. So whether we were work from home or we were in person, that would be the same answer. That's, that's really cool. Um, and I like that you have the one-on-ones and you have at least once a week meetings. Those are all really important things. What are some limiting beliefs that maybe you've had to overcome to get to where you are today? Tell me more about your question, limiting beliefs. Limiting beliefs, like self-doubt. Was there, any, was there ever a time where, you know, you kind of doubted yourself in some way? Like what were some of those limiting beliefs that you had to push through? Oh, yes. You know, and I say, can... no, that's not true about myself. I'm going for it anyways. Well, you know, Lee, I told you that um, when I left corporate life, I wanted to take a bit of a sabbatical so I could decide what I wanted to do for my 2.0. Yes. Right. And as I began to think about that, it's not an easy journey because you really have to challenge yourself about uh, what is it that I want to do. And that's a purely personal thing. It is not something that you kind of have to listen to what other people expect of you, right? Other people expect you to be, you know, hugely successful. You're going to land something and you're going to be super happy. Um, okay. That's what they expect you to do. But for you, you need to to decide what you want to do and under what parameters will make you happy. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's very easy to have self-doubt. It's very easy to feel a little bit lost. And I will tell you that's part of the journey. You almost have to feel that before you can kind of lock on to what it is that you want. Um, And I will say that during this kind of period of exploration, one of the guiding things, it was self-talk, but one of the guiding things that I told myself, and I actually, I give this advice to many of my other friends who, who might be going through transition is, it's actually two things. One is choose joy. You really need to choose joy. You can't wait for things to get easier um, or simpler or better because life is always going to be complex. So find the spot where you can choose joy and then find peace. So those two things, choose joy, find peace. And that helps you on this journey as, you know, to to kind of confront these limiting beliefs because, uh, you know, at every moment when you're in this exploration, it's easy to say, okay, well, I'm not sure whether I'm going to find this. Mm-hmm. But if you're always kind of going with that goal in mind or, or that, that objective of mind of how am I going to choose joy? How am I going to find peace? You'll have the courage not to stumble and not to compromise. Interesting. Because I wonder if some people find joy in the comfort zone, but you're saying that can lead you to go outside of your comfort zone. It could. I mean, that's a personal thing, right? Yeah. It's, but, but, but it's it's a... Where at this, and look, I've also learned, you can ask me the same question at three different stages of my life. And I'm going to give you a different answer. Right. Because of your personal circumstance. Right. So, uh, this time, you know, when I went, it's like choose joy. Well, where is that going to be? And for me, it was about having fun and it was about making, you know, being able to deliver social impact, um, or, you know, doing good. And that's, that was kind of my filter. Of, of what I wanted to do next. And then you can embrace and just feel joy every morning that you wake up, right? Because you right. can recognize there are going to be ebbs and flows. There are going to be ups and downs for sure. But the broader picture is about choosing joy because life is just too short. That's so true. Yeah. So how do you work to improve yourself so that you can best lead a company? Do you read books? Ask for feedback. Okay. Feedback. Feedback. I think feedback is 
feedback is really important. Yes, absolutely. Just there's going to be um, becoming more aware, you know, in terms of self education, right? In terms of just broadening broadening your horizon and being able to explore. I'm a very curious person, so you know, I'm going to be reading searching on the internet for lots of different things um, just to kind of expand learning in terms of real day-to-day leadership. Mm-hmm. It's about looking for feedback. How can I, can I, how can I help? How can I enable, um, you know, to do this better, mm-hmm. faster, more efficiently? Um, how can you communicate? I mean, communication again is, is super insightful. It's super important. It's definitely Um, super important too when it comes to delivering that feedback. So what advice do you have? How should managers be delivering constructive feedback? Constructive feedback, I think there's probably an art, a little bit of an art to it. Mm -hmm. You provide constructive feedback on what matters. Okay, we're not talking nits here. We're talking about how do people think uh, and act on a, um, on a level in which they can control. So behaviors, when you're aware, let's, let's call it when you're aware of a certain behavior and it's normal circumstance, you learn to control it, right? Mm -hmm. You learn to monitor it. You can filter it, but when you're under stress, there is no ability to control on the heat of that moment, right? Um, and I think that, uh, when you're more aware of when that happens, you know, how it impacts others. So, you know, when you provide constructive feedback, you need to do it, uh, in a sensitive manner, right. But also backed by either example or fact, right. Because constructive feedback is not about feeling mm-hmm. it's about fact, because the constructive part of it is that you're offering the feedback so someone can either change, modify, or be more aware of right. behavior, right? But you can't do that with somebody else, because that, that's a personal opinion that right. somebody's telling you, yep. right? So it needs to be based on, on fact. So if you don't have examples, then th- there's really nothing constructive about whatever kind of feedback you're going to provide, because you're kind of giving the person nothing to go off of. Well, it depends on what kind of feedback that you want to offer, Lee. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're asking someone to change their behavior because there was something that happened or Mm -hmm. you you were able to provide data, that's one thing. Another way that you're wanting to provide feedback is if somebody has either offended you or if um, you're upset or something that that's not necessarily kind of general behavior, but there was an incident that happened, Mm -hmm. right? Um, one of the best ways to be able to talk about it is not doing it in an accusatory manner, mm-hmm. but saying, hey, you know, when you did that, um, you made me feel like X, Y, Z, right? You made me feel incompetent. Mm-hmm. Um, you made me feel like I didn't know my job. You know, was that your intent? Because that's, but not in an accusatory manner, you know, but was that right. really your intent or, um, you know, give me some feedback. Six, then you're already giving them uh, or signaling to them that there's an issue. Mm-hmm. But if you walk in there and say, you know, that didn't work for me, you know, you're really just going to have to change because that just isn't going to work. That's not going to get you anywhere. Right. Yeah. I appreciate you walking through this because I mean, I think, you know, for some people, this might be really obvious and, you know, kind of, uh, entry-level stuff, but it actually shockingly isn't for a lot of people. And so I think that I appreciate you kind of walking through these, you know, ways of communication and management. Um, It's all very valuable. Um, To kind of wrap things up here, do you have any um, kind of final advice that you would want to share for aspiring entrepreneurs, founders, other business leaders about what it takes to be a CEO? I really come back to my leadership legacy statement, Lee. I mean, listen, learn, and connect with your heart. Only then can you lead with authentic passion because there's a lot of truth that's wrapped up in that. Um, And I I live by that every day. What's something you think most people don't know about executive leadership? It can be very lonely. I mean, I think that you talked about it, but it, it can be very lonely. Um, and that's why if you don't um, 
off for a two-way street, you will isolate yourself and you will become um, um, disconnected with the business and with your people. And that will be the first step to a downfall. Right. That's very true. And there, I mean, what do you think of the structure? I'm just really curious for your thoughts on this. You know, there's a lot of companies I think that are structured where the founder, um, kind of CEO most of the time is like a visionary person and they're out there, Mm -hmm. you know, fundraising or they're out there doing something. And then they have their co-founder COO or some other kind of COO that they've hired in to kind of run the team and manage the team and everything like that. Um, but that founder who's the CEO is kind of off and there's no more connection anymore with kind of the team. And, and obviously from an efficiency standpoint, it makes sense to divide and conquer. But in a lot of ways, I think when that CEO is very separated from the management of the team and there isn't that two-way street anymore, it's kind of siloed to the one person. What do you think about that kind of organizational structure and what are your thoughts on that? Well, when that happens, Lee, you have to change the structure because it's not working anymore. It's not effective. But if you describe the instance that you're, you know, that you just kind of outlined, um, what I would say is that those two folks, the CEO who is the founder and then the CEO or president, you know, who is actually running the operations, um, if they have a really good relationship, because it only works, that only works if you have a good relationship and the chemistry is good, Mm -hmm. um, they should have a conversation with each other to see how should we how should we create the culture of this company on its next step? Right. Right. It doesn't mean necessarily that the CEO has to completely disappear, but you know what? Like, it, you know, remember, you have to be self-aware of what mm-hmm. you're really good at. Right. And a lot of the visionaries, they like to create, they like to innovate and they don't want to be constrained by a box, right. right. Or by, by anything that's tight. They want to be free. Mm-hmm. And um, that, so that doesn't mean that the, the founder or the in this instance, the CEO, right, um, has to leave or be divorced from the company. Um, right. There's going to be a way. Some of them want to be the chief creative officer, mm-hmm. you know, or they could step away from the day-to-day of the business and become an advisor. There's all different kinds of roles because my suspicion in this, in this hypothesis, right, hypothetical yeah. situation, yeah. Um, that the CEO, the founder is probably not happy with exactly kind of how it's working. So you need to play to the strengths of everyone. Mm-hmm. And especially since you're, you know, a, a startup or you're more flexible, right? You can change things, right? Yeah. Everybody needs to play to their strength. Um, and that's how you win in the end. Remember, have fun, right? Yes, absolutely. So what is next for Gathered Foods? What, what can we expect? What's rolling out next? I know you'd mentioned um, some crab cakes, uh, vegan crab cakes. So I'm super excited to check those out. Uh, what else do you guys have coming out? Well, you know, my ambition for Good Catch is that we dare to grow. I mean, you know, we are all about propelling change through craveable plant-based foods um, so that all beings in our planet can thrive. And uh, those are based on our values of respect, innovation, courage, and compassion. And so as we dare to grow, we really want to be globally relevant. So, um, you know, definitely look for us uh, to make uh, presence and impact, not only here, but around the world. Um, And, you know, we just want to deliver chef-driven, innovation-based, 100% plant-based seafood alternatives. And we have endless opportunities to make that happen. So um, I look forward, um, Lee, for you joining us on this journey. And I'm going to get you your crab cakes. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. You have no idea. I've been so excited to interview you. Thank you so much for your time and joining us and really sharing your expert leadership skills and tips and advice. It's really was wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm delighted to join you. Thank you for the invitation, Lee. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.